Welcome to the St. Joseph Radio Presents live program broadcasting to you from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. The program that for over 30 years has brought you eloquent speakers from across the globe to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. Our program covers a variety of topics relating to current issues and occurrences in our daily lives. Now, with the aid of technology, we are able to bring the gospel message to the four corners of the world, where Christ himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. It is our hope at St. Joseph Radio that through these programs, we can help evangelize the world and change one soul at a time. Now, here is your host to introduce today's guest and topic. Welcome. My name is uh, Sean Miller, and I'm going to be both the host and the speaker today. We're coming to you from uh, St. Joe Radio, like they said in the beginning, the Rome of the West. And um, this is going to be your Catholic voice in broadcasting. So my topic for today is going to be um, pretty much, why did God become man? I would say this is my uh, memory Christmas to you. My name is, uh, again, Sean Miller. I'm a director of religious education at the Immaculate Heart of Mary Church in New Melly. And um, I wanted to put together this series just to kind of really, as a preparation for Christmas, as well as to um, just kind of prepare ourselves for these great uh, holy days and, and happy days. So one of the things I did was, is I, I went through the Bible and I tried to look at all the texts in which it says something to the effect of why Jesus came, um, both directly and indirectly from the Lord's own words, as well as various Old Testament prophecies and other New Testament texts, such as from St. Peter and St. Paul. So if you think about really the important questions to ask, one of the greatest ones is really, um, who do you say I am? And then if you acknowledge that it's Jesus is the Christ, then you got to ask, well, then why did I come? So if you think about all the texts in which Jesus says, you know, I came so that, or I came in order to fulfill, or the Son of Man came to, to you know, not to be served, but to serve, it's really interesting. It's kind of like a Bible study here. So think about this, John six thirty eight. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. So that's going to be the overarching theme of this day. Uh, I'm going to get into the specifics. I have this, I can say, a memory Christmas aid, C-H-R-I-S-T-M-A-S. I got points for each of those as to, as to why Jesus came. But before I want to get into the specifics, I want to kind of zoom out and uh, and look at the at the big picture first. So when you think about why did he come, why was he sent, there's a great line from the Catechism. It says that uh, this is in 221. St. John affirms that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God's very being is love. He's a trinity. So by sending his only son and the spirit of love in the fullness of time, God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has destined us to share in that exchange. That's the big picture. So when we talk about God as love, we're not talking about warm fuzzy. We're talking about agape, this sacrificial love that's willing to sacrifice oneself for the happiness of someone else. This is who God is in his being in eternity, but that he has destined us to share in that exchange. So Christmas is about what this focus is in this sharing of this exchange. So you think about the word Christmas, really, we forget it about what it really means. It's, it's Christ's mass. 
And so it's a great celebration of where we kind of focus in on why we share in that exchange, how we share in that exchange. I mean, we've probably all seen the bumper stickers that um, say, keep Christ in Christmas. But there's one I've seen that says, really, keep the Mass or put the Mass back into Christmas. Because Christmas is about the Mass. When we celebrate that great historical event of when God came to earth and allowed us to share in the exchange, when humanity and divinity was united in the person of Jesus, and then he allows us to share in that exchange. So just to kind of start off, I'd like to put this in, in a prayer. This is the prayer, the opening prayer for Mass during Christmas Day. So we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, who wonderfully created the dignity of human nature and still more wonderfully restored it, grant, we pray, that we may share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. So I want to help put the Mass back in Christmas, but to do it in a, in a memory aid so that we can really understand the purpose of why Christ came, what the meaning of Christmas is, and also to kind of... To, to share the gospel. I mean, Catholics are those who, when it says someone says, you know, what is the gospel? We don't really know what to say. So I hope to kind of, you know, highlight that here too. So again, we're focusing right now on the big picture. So God has destined us to share in that exchange of his love of the Holy Trinity. And really the prayer that I just said, that's what we say at every mass. That's what the priest prays. You know, when he adds um, at the preparation of the gifts, when he adds water to the wine, He says this prayer, by the mystery of the water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. May we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So you think about the water mixing with the wine. Really, the water represents us in our baptized humanity, our human nature. And then the wine really represents divinity, Christ's divinity. So the water is mixing with the wine. It's us sharing and mixing with the divine life, the divine grace. So we'll say that Christmas and Christ Mass are celebrations of the great wedding of divinity with humanity. So that's what the incarnation is in the person of Jesus. So he weds heaven and, and, and earth in himself, and then he causes us, allows us to share in that great exchange for all eternity. <clears throat> Excuse me. So really, one of the ways you can look at the faith in general, or really the, the, the entire Bible, is in five words. It's this, it's God desires to marry us. That might sound kind of odd, but you think about it, the Lord wedded humanity and divinity together, and then now ultimately in creation, God desires to unite himself with his creation. In a word, it's covenant. It's to forge a covenant with us, to share his life with us in time and into eternity. And so we'll say the Bible really starts and ends with weddings, you think about the first Adam with his bride Eve, it's a marriage. And then ultimately the book of Revelation, when Christ comes to the second Adam with his bride, the church. I mean, one of the best books out there I think you can read about this whole theme is uh, Dr. Brant Petrie's. It's called Jesus, the Bridegroom, the Greatest Love Story Ever Told. And that is really the story of the Bible. It's the story of Christmas. You know, uh, one of the readings we have on Christmas uh, Day, it's Isaiah 62. It says, as a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. I mean, Jesus spoke of himself as the bridegroom. 
And in the book of Revelation, we see about the church being called the bride. I mean, John the Baptist called himself the friend of the bridegroom. So the bridegroom is coming for his bride. And so it's really powerful in that reading for Christmas at the Vigil Mass, again, Isaiah 62. He gives a prophecy about this whole text, about as a young man marries a virgin, so your builder shall marry you. He says that, you know, we'll be given this new name. We'll have this crown, this diadem. And that's a sign in a sense for like the bride taking the name of her, her husband's name. You know, she's, she's crowned. This is what the Lord wants to do for his people. And it's not just something kind of like um, intellectually. It's something really personally there too. You know, it's, it's interesting, the, the text in the Bible where it talks about knowledge. You know, knowledge is one way of coming to know somebody. I mean, in terms of like intimately becoming part of somebody. It says, you know, like we, we can know things intellectually. But there's a part, um, one of the texts in the scriptures where it says, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. That's much more than just intellectual. But when you think of God coming to marry us and you think about covenant, obviously our minds go to the great Last Supper when Jesus says, I give my body. This is my body. This is my blood given for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. Take and receive. So we'll say that the Lord's union with us isn't just intellectual, isn't just spiritual. It is, it's very personal. It's covenantal. It's sacramental. It is real. And that's what he gives us in himself in the Eucharist. So the bridegroom comes for his bride and he's going to give his life. And the goal is that we take that life and then we bear fruit. So it's no accident when you think about it, the Lord's first public miracle uh, took place at a wedding. And really, that's the first bookend of the last bookend, which is going to be his last miracle is going to take place at the Last Supper. First miracle changes water into wine. Last Supper, he changes uh, wine into himself. So again, think imagery, think nuptials, think marriage, think bridegroom, think bride. So Jesus unites himself to his bride. This is the really the purpose of Christmas. And then when he lays down his life for his bride... And he unites us to himself through the cross. He then says, I want to celebrate this and I'm going to shower you with gifts. I mean, that's really what Pentecost is, is that when the Lord, after he gives himself to us and after he says, wait here, he's going to shower the church with gifts, just like we shower a couple at a wedding. So these gifts of the spirit, prophecy and wisdom and healing and whatnot, all these things, the Lord's going to shower us. So Revelation 19, 17 I'm sorry, 19.7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come, the bride has made herself ready. So the goal at the wedding day is to keep our hearts and our garments and our minds prepared, ultimately for the second coming when the Lord returns. He's still with us. He's still present with us, but there's going to be a definitive coming where he's going to take, the bridegroom is going to take his bride definitively into eternity. So you think about the wedding garment. I mean, just think of the song at a wedding day. You know, here comes the bride all dressed in, 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 in white. And so the wedding garment that the, the, the bride has on really is symbolic of, of baptism, right? I mean, uh, when we're baptized, what happens? Well, if you recall the ritual, it says, the celebrant says, you know, uh, after you've been baptized, you have become a new creation and have clothed yourself in Christ and then he gives us this white garment. See in this white garment the outward sign of your Christian dignity. With your family and friends to help you by word and example, bring that dignity unstained into the everlasting life of heaven. So really our goal 
as baptized believers who've been given this white garment as the bride of Christ, is we're to try and carry that garment unstained into the presence of the Lord. Now, the problem is, and we all know, uh, like James says, pure religion is this, is to keep oneself unstained from the world. But really, that's basically impossible. I mean, we're all sinners, we're all fallen, we're all broken, but we shouldn't lose hope. Because even when we stain the garment, this is why Christ has come. Ultimately, he's come as Savior. You think about that great text in Ephesians, where Paul says in chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So basically, the Lord himself comes to make sure that our garments can remain unstained. And if they get stained, he can cleanse us. You know, that's the gift really of what baptism and these sacraments are. You know, it's kind of like um, <laughs> like the thought about Snow White in the sense that Christ comes to make our garments Snow White. You know, you think of us like in the movie, you know, we're under the wicked queen, so to speak, running the spell of death. You know, we've partaken of of the fruit that causes us to to kind of die. But here comes the Prince Charming, ultimately the God man who gives us the true love kiss and he basically touches us and he cleanses us. He comes to make us whole and then to take us to himself. So this is the kiss of the resurrected life, but it cost, it came at a price. I mean, in the Snow White, Prince Charming is fine, but in this case of the true story of, of the bridegroom coming for his bride, Christ takes the curse of the, the sin and of death upon himself. And so, you know, you could say instead of carrying his bride across the threshold, the Lord carries the cross. That was what was going to be the effect of sin and death from the beginning. We think about the fall, right after the fall. The it says that they were, they were cursed. They're going to you know have to work by sweat. There's going to be thorns and thistles. They ultimately have to die. And then you look at Jesus. Then he's the one who's going to be sweating in blood. He's going to be crowned with these thorns and these thistles. He's going to take on death himself and kind of carry this cross, and ultimately, you know, uh, win us back to himself by taking the penalty upon himself to pay the price so that we can, in a sense, be free. So through his his life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he's going to call his bride to be united with him and then to share in this in this great exchange. So it's almost as if you can kind of picture, you know, and visualize, here's the penalty that the bride has undergone through sin. He takes that upon himself he carries that cross, he nails it, he dies, and now, in a sense, it's done. But now the bride can reunite with her, with her you know, resurrected, glorified Savior. So the real gift, then, is not, it just, just, just doesn't end with, with death, is that it, it, it really becomes anew in this, in this resurrected life. So now we're, we're resurrected, we're married to this risen Lord. So, you know, again, go back to weddings, you think about... Uh, um, you know, what Jesus did in terms of giving his life for us. But this resurrected life is going to split time in two. So we're going to speak about that in a second. Just want to take a little station ID here to say you're listening to St. Joe Radio, the Rome of the West. My name is uh, Sean Miller. I'm uh, the Director of Religious Education here at the Macarthur of Mary New Melly. And I'm coming to speak to you today just a little bit about, about Christmas, about um, why Christ came, what we can learn, trying to give you a memory to make it... Um, 
more user-friendly so that we can speak about this to family and, and friends and, and whatnot. You know, when you think about, like, why we get together for Christmas and what it all means, uh, it's good to kind of ponder these points that, um, you know, we just don't want to get together just to have a bunch of food, but to really share the meaning of the celebration. So you might have heard about uh, what's called the bow tie analogy of salvation history. So you think about a bow tie, you know, you got the two sides, and in the center is 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 the key point. So look at the first end of the bow tie. Look at that like as the old covenant, and look at the other end as like the new covenant. And in the center is, you would say, is Christ. He comes to fulfill all that was foretold in, in the old and, and then now we have this new life in this new covenant. So Christ, with his coming, he splits time in two. You know, like uh, that Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty, he said, if you travel back in time from the present, 2,000, 1,500 to 100 to zero, what happened such that now we mark our time back to this event? It must have been something pretty big. And that pretty big was not just the coming of Christ at Christmas, but it was his resurrection from the dead. And what's the beauty about the resurrection is that, you know, like Phil Robertson again said, there's only one person I know who can get me out of the grave unless you know something that I don't. I'm still waiting on someone to enlighten me on what story beats um, that one. At the end of the day, Christ coming as man it's going to be crowned by the resurrection so that death doesn't have the last word. You know, So ultimately, kind of in summary of this first part, it's that the word became flesh, God became man, so that we might know God's love, is that the great story of mankind is going to be crowned by this coming of God to earth. And he's going to come to show us that love is stronger than death. Than death. Like that one line says, I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? He said, this much. Then he stretched out his arms and he died. So we'll say that Christ's love ultimately, he comes to to die. I mean, we come to live, but Christ comes to die, to take on the curse that his spouse um, fell from in terms of falling from grace. He takes it upon himself, he nails it to the cross, and he comes to give us life. So again... When I went through the Bible, I looked at all these different texts where Jesus would say, you know, I came in order to, the Son of Man came to, this is why I've come so that I have come to fulfill. And I want to kind of follow this part where it says I've come to fulfill. I asked some friends, I said, if you had to give a real reason about, you know, the number one reason why I think Christ came, one of the guys said, he was, he said, I think he, I would say he came to fulfill all that was foretold. So these prophecies, you know, like Fulton Sheen once, one time said, if God were to enter the world stage of history, you would expect that he would be pre-announced. You know, it's a big deal if God's going to come to earth. You can imagine if you had some, you know, noted person, celebrity, um, whoever it might be, come in your house. Think about what you do for Christmas to prepare your, your, your house. But Fulton Sheen wrote that many have appeared throughout history declaring that they were from God, messengers to be heard. What are the certain tests or standards of these claimants? Think of Joseph Smith or Muhammad etc. Has any one of the claimants been pre-announced or foretold? No other world religion founder was pre-announced. There we must see an argument from prophecy. From the moment of the very first covenant and its breaking, God said that there will come the seed of a woman who would undo the work of evil. Genesis 3.15. The principal purpose to which the plan of the old covenant was directed was to prepare for the coming of Christ. So again, you think about God-man coming to earth there's probably going to be some stage set up for that. And that's what we call the Old Testament. You know, so uh, remember when the Lord was uh, speaking, he said, in the scriptures, they bear witness to me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
So he says, again, I have not come to abolish all the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. And then think when he rose from the dead, he was speaking with those folks at Emmaus. And he said, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So again, the stage was set. We should have recognized the time of his visitation, but we didn't. But there's a great line in the catechism that says, this is in 522, the coming of God's son to earth is an event of such immensity that God willed to prepare for it over centuries. He makes everything converge on Christ, all the rituals, sacrifices, figures, and symbols of the first covenant. So again, go back to that bow tie analogy of salvation history. In the center, everything converges on Christ. So this makes uh, really reading the Bible kind of exciting. I mean, you think about whenever we go to Mass, we've got this first reading from the Old Testament, and then we got the Gospel. Those are kind of paralleled. So we should be able to almost get to the point where when we read the Gospel, we should think about how was it prefigured in the Old Testament. And then if we read the if we read the, the first reading in at, at the Mass, we should almost get to know, like, you know, how is this going to be fulfilled in the New? So there's this term there. It's called typology which basically in the Catechism 128, 129 speaks about it. But, but, but bottom line, typology is kind of saying that what was kind of prefigured in the Old Testament was but a shadow or a type compared to its fulfillment in the New. So if the Old Testament type was only a shadow of the light, then imagine what must be the power of the light itself fulfilled in the New Testament. I mean, again, think about Adam, Moses, David, Joseph, Jacob, Solomon, Jeremiah. When you look at, at their lives their works, you look at the scriptures written about them, you can make major fascinating parallels how Jesus fulfilled them as the new Adam, the new Moses, the new David, the new Solomon, the new Isaiah, the new Jeremiah, the new Elisha, etc. And so when you do that and you see these parallels, it's really fascinating. Like if you've ever need uh, seen the Footprints of God series with Steve Ray, that's a great series that kind of uh, also puts some of these parallels together. But but uh, one way to kind of summarize it, you could say the new, this is the New Testament, is in the Old Testament implicit, the old is in the new explicit. The new is in the old inferior, the old is in the new superior. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old contained, the old is in the new explained. So as you're reading through and you see these parallels, you can uh, see what Mark Twain once said. He goes, uh, history may not repeat itself. But it certainly does rhyme. So all of history is essentially his story. So we should see parallels to kind of say, okay, when the Lord came on earth, we should recognize this is the one who was prefigured. This is the one who was spoken about. So again, along with typology, we've got these things called prophecies. So prophecies are all those sayings about a future one who would come, a deliverer, a savior, a messiah, a God-man. And it's really fascinating when you, I mean, there's great books on this, like Salvation is from the Jews by Roy Shulman or The Crucified Rabbi, Rabbi by Dr. Taylor Marshall. You've got uh, video series like Genesis to Jesus, um, Our Father's Plan. There's one called The Hope. But it's amazing to ponder these prophecies regarding Jesus's birth, life, and ministry, as also well as his death and resurrection. I mean, think about where he would be born, when he would be born, what tribe he would come from, um, his public ministry as teacher, as healer and savior. You think of all the prophecies regarding how he would die, how he would be pierced. And these are written hundreds and even up to a thousand years 
before Christ came. I mean, really, it goes back to Genesis when after the fall, it says that one will come who will crush the serpent's head. But probably one of the most fascinating ones is in 2 Samuel 7. And we've heard a lot of this at Christmas time. It's really, we're going to be hearing a lot about Jesus as the fulfillment of the son of David. And look back on uh, 2 Samuel 7, is that um, David is prophesied that there would always be a descendant on his throne. Now, to get an extraordinary, uh, our sense of the extraordinary nature of this prophecy, Fulton Sheen wrote, he said, take just one prophecy about him coming from this line of David. That's in 2 Samuel 7. That meant that for about a thousand years, there had to be a male descendant in every single descendant from David in order to have a fulfillment of that prophecy. I mean, they say, think about how remarkable this is. I mean, Abraham Lincoln, for example, has no living male descendant. So you think about this prophecy about David. One would come in this line of David. And even after the exile and so forth, you know, what would happen? But then, boom, here comes the angel Gabriel to Our Lady. And she goes, do not be afraid. You have found favor. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And his kingdom will never end. So here, here, here is the one foretold whose kingdom would never end. I mean, the angel Gabriel, the last time we heard about him in the Bible was when he appeared to Daniel, and he gave Daniel some amazing prophecies. Oftentimes, we don't know the book of Daniel, but it kind of almost foretold the, the exact time when um, when the prophecy would be filled, fulfilled for this son of David to kind of ascend his throne and have this kingdom that will never end. So here's Jesus. He is from the city of David in Bethlehem. He is born uh, under the care of Our Lady and St. Joseph, who was of the royal line of David. He's going to adopt Jesus as his his legal son. And so when Christ comes on the scene, it's like the time is fulfilled. You think back to all these great covenants from Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus. Under David, you get this national kingdom where all the tribes are gathered together. But then we know there's a great fall after Solomon. There's a split. But then here Christ comes on, on the scene and he says that the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. He's in the region of Galilee, by the way, where that's the place where the, the tribes, the kingdom were first kind of dispersed when Assyria attacked it in 722. All these 10 tribes are, are lost. This is where Christ makes his headquarters to kind of come and, and regather the tribes, bring about the kingdom. So Christ comes, one of his reasons is, is to fulfill these prophecies and ultimately to fulfill that the kingdom of God is going to be at, at hand. So this this ultimate goal is going to be a regathering of the tribes, a, a, a new kingdom, a new Israel. We'll call it the universal kingdom, and the word for universal is Catholic. So this Catholic kingdom, we call it this, this Catholic church. So from Adam and Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, up until Jesus, all these prophecies foretell about who, who he's going to be. Christ comes to take that into himself and gives us this universal kingdom. So we'll be back in a second here after we take a, a short uh, station break. You're listening to St. Joe Radio, Rome of the West. My name is Sean Miller. We'll see you after the break. Hi, 
this is Matt Logerman with St. Joseph Radio with a great gift idea, a St. Benedict bracelet, a trendy accessory for men, women, and children that not only looks good on everyone's wrist, but is actually armor for the spiritual battlefield. This unique bracelet is handmade in Europe and contains 10 medals within the braided cord in the adult size and 7 medals in the children's size. On the front of each beautiful medal is St. Benedict holding a cross in his right hand, the object of his devotion. On the back of each medal is a cross. Surrounding the back of the medal and cross are the letters V-R-S-N M-V-S-M-Q-L-I-V-B in Latin reference which translates Be gone, Satan. Never tempt me with your vanities. What you offer me is evil. Drink the poison yourself. And finally located at the top is the word Pax which means peace. All bracelets come packaged with an informational card and the St. Benedict blessing which your local priest can administer. This gift is for everyone you love and care about, including yourself. Available from St. Joseph Radio, check the website at www.saintjosephradio.net St. Joseph Catholic Radio is proud to announce the launch of SJEN-TV, the St. Joseph Evangelization Network. SJEN-TV is a premier online Catholic broadcasting network providing quality Catholic programming 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We have programming such as live studio interviews, St. Joe's Java speaker presentations, current Catholic issues, and the Pro-Life series. We're featuring the many talented speakers out of Orange County, California, and this Archdiocese of St. Louis, Missouri including Professor John Gresham, Father James Mason, Karen Nokemper, Rick Hollerick, Bill Federer, and many more. To review the program list, go to sjen.tv or on Roku, sjen.tv. All this programming is free, and we are welcoming sponsorship of new programs. Find out more at sjen.tv. Okay, welcome back. You're at St. Joe Radio here. My name is Sean Miller. I'm a director of religious education at Immaculate Heart of Mary uh, Church in New Melly, and we're talking to you about Christmas, why did God become man? So I want to get right back into it. We're doing this memory aid Christmas, and I just want to list out what the memory aid is because I kind of wanted to till the soil a little bit. And so here's the memory aid, C-H-R-I-S-T-M-A-S. C, Christ comes to conquer, to heal, to reconcile, to intercede, to save, to teach, to model, to adopt, and to send. So those are nine letters at the height of it. The fifth one is S, is to save. That's really the ultimate reason. That's what many people focus on, especially when you think about Protestants, evangelicals. It's a real emphasis on Christ as Savior, and, and that is the truth. I mean, that's at the height of it. When you think about what is the gospel, if someone asks you that, um, it would usually involve something about Jesus as Savior. I kind of had joked with um, a friend of mine, and, and I was asking her, I said, you know, now, if, if you had to say, what is the gospel, what would you say? And uh, she said, uh, which one? And I was like, well, no, I mean, not not one of the four. I'm like, you know, what is the central message? And I just want to say a little bit about that, because at the end of the day, uh, when the angel Gabriel speaks to Our Lady and says, you shall name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's at the heart of what the gospel is, is that Christ comes to save the world. So you think about the word, uh, you know, gospel, good news, good tidings, news. It's it's a message of of salvation. That, you know, we're going to be saved from enemies. In this case, we're going to be saved from the ultimate en- enemy, which is sin and eternal death. Now, it's interesting when you think about like um, traditional ways you might have heard, let's say, Protestants or evangelicals uh, speak about this. They have what's called the uh, Romans Road. And this is something interesting. So like if they were to come up to you and say, you know, what is what, what is the gospel? They would say, number one, you know, this th- this is all text from the Paul's letter to, to the Romans. 
Number one, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Number two, the wages of sin is death. Number three, God, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still, still, still sinners, God's died for us. And number four, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So they kind of put it in terms of like, you know, we're bankrupt. We've been disgraced. Christ comes to kind of bridge the gap. Put your trust in him and all, all as well. Other ways of looking at it, it's kind of like in a, in a courtroom, you know, in the sense that like we've been judged guilty sinners. Uh, the penalty is just. We deserve the death penalty. Uh, someone comes in to take our place gets the penalty and sets us free. Kind of like Barabbas. You think about the scene in the Gospels where uh, Pilate has got uh, Jesus and, and Barabbas there. Both Bar-Abba means son of the father. You have two sons of the fathers there, so to speak, and one, the criminal, is set free while one takes the punishment. That's kind of one way of looking at about what Jesus comes to. He comes to take away the sin of the, of the world. He takes the punishment that we deserved. Kind of like the gospel in a nutshell, if you talk to the Billy Graham folks, it's John 3.16. They say, I mean, I watched a video on Billy Graham. He always uses that. This is the 25 words, the gospel in a nutshell, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that's John 3.16. I mean, I mean, in, in terms of a of a formula, you can say like like um, if I was a trying to present like a more concrete Catholic way, I would speak about it in terms of relationship, right? You could say this: first, God has created us to be in relationship with Him. He loves us. He has a plan for us. Second, that relationship is broken through sin. You can talk about the original sin, personal sin. Third, Jesus restored our relationship with the Father through His death and resurrection. Fourth, we have a choice whether to accept or reject that relationship. And fifth, the way to accept that relationship is to believe and to turn away from sins and to receive the sacraments. I mean, I think in terms of a simple way of explaining it, you want to say, what is the good news? I would just say, well, Christmas and Easter. Um, What do we celebrate? Christmas and Easter, right? Christmas, God came to earth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We can know what God has in mind. He showed us the way. Easter, this is answers the, the why, really. He came to die for sins. He took the punishment that we deserved. He nailed it to the cross, and he rose to set us free to show that death doesn't have the last word. So you can say, what is the gospel for you Catholics? We'd say Christmas and Easter. This is why I go to church. This is why I celebrate. This is why we make a big deal about it. This is why the world still does, too. So Christmas marks that time when Christ fulfills all the promises, all the prophecies. He comes as son of David in the flesh. And then Easter is when he becomes, he shows us he's son of God in power. So Christmas and Easter. So when you think about um, Christ as Savior, that's key. That's got to be at the center of our mind. But then, like if you look at the catechism, this is number 456 through 460, it has a, a... a section about why did the word become flesh? And it gives various reasons. Obviously, Savior is the key, but let's look at all, all these other ones. Um, again, <coughs> excuse me. Christ comes, see, to conquer, to heal, to reconcile, to intercede, to save, to teach, to model, to adopt, to send. 
Number one, to conquer. Now, when you think about Christ coming as a baby, you don't really think about a conquering king. But it's almost like C.S. Lewis said, he slipped behind enemy lines coming as a baby, coming to take on the human condition at its very beginning. But he comes to, to conquer. To conquer what? To conquer Satan, sin, and death. Because we've been in bondage. We need to be set free you know, both in time and in eternity. So again, this is one of those texts where Jesus says, why I came so that. So in 1 John 3, 8, 8 uh, John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, conquer the works of the devil. You know, since the fall, um, Satan and the demonics had a certain kind of control over the world. It's, we're kind of disgraced. We're kind of under his realm. We're in kind of enemy territory. But Christ comes to set us free from that. Now think about this, what that means. There's a great line in Hebrews 2. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same nature, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong bondage. Now, we're all, always called to be not afraid, but what are we afraid of? Ultimately, everything that we fear in life is kind of subordinate to the great fear of, of death. But Christ has come to kind of take away that fear, which really imprisons us. He's taken on what frightens us the most, and he's demonstrated that God's love is more powerful than what frightens us the most. So he's taken the burden. He's paid the price. So we don't really have anything to fear in a sense that, you know, Christ has taken the sting out of, out of death. That's what held, has held us in, in bondage. It's what holds us still in bondage if we allow it. But we think about this, you know, um, that fear kind of blinds us. It paralyzes us. You know, think about all the times anybody is afraid. They're, they don't think clearly. They don't act clearly. When you think about when the Lord appeared to St. Paul, you know, on the road to Damascus, you know, Paul's in shock. Who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He says, I have appeared to you for this purpose. And he says, I'm going to send you to these Gentiles and, and, and to the world to do what? This is in Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So basically, the Lord says we're in a kingdom of darkness. And we've got to have our eyes open to it so that we can see and then turn to him. So the Lord is on a rescue mission here to rescue us from the power of Satan and of death. I mean, think about like um, the movie, The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. You know, Aragorn, is, he's, he's trying to take back the kingdom from the evil Lord Sauron. Think back to the Lion King. You know, Mufasa's son Simba takes back the kingdom from the evil lion Scar. Is that... The king is coming for his kingdom, for his bride. We've been under the dark forces, you know. So in the book of Revelation, it's, it says, Weep not the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. Revelation 17, 14, the lamb will conquer them. He is Lord of lords and the king of kings. The book of Revelation, more than any other, mentions this word conquering, is that the Lord is coming to conquer the evil kingdom, to set his bride free, to win it back to himself, and to take it with him for all eternity. And so that really began with the fall. You think about Genesis 3.15, right? After the fall, it's the first prophecy. They call it the first gospel that God says, he goes, I will put enmity or separation between you, Satan, and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall strike your head and you shall strike his heel. Some, some translations say bruise or break or, or, or crush. 
you think about all the statues that you might see of Our Lady where she's stepping on the foot or on, on the head of the serpent. You know, she's pregnant with Christ. Is that this, this new Adam and this new Eve, there were the f- ones to foretell that would be the one crushing. Ultimately, it's Christ's power that's going to crush the head of the serpent. But at the same time, he's going to be stung. I mean, you think about the great scene in the movie The Passion where it begins in the garden. And here's um, this serpent crawling next to the Lord. And then he stands up and he, he smashes its head. But when you think about what's going to happen here, as he crushes its head, it's almost as if the uh, author of Genesis gives us a picture that that the serpent is going to strike the heel of the one, and he too will be struck dead. It's as if the poison from the serpent's bite is going to go into the body of the one that's going to crush him, and they both will be killed. You know, and in a sense, that's really what happened. You think about the Lord on the cross, it's... Um, he kind of compares himself, when you read John 3, 14, he says, as, most, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And it's, it's so, so God loves the world, he's going to send his son, his son so that the world might be saved through him. It's as if Christ has taken the bite of the serpent into himself. He's become the poison of sin. If you look at him on the cross, you'd be like, this is someone that is just like filled with poison, so to speak. But in turn... By taking on the poison, he kind of creates the antidote. You think about when he's, he's, his side is open. It's almost like he gives us the anti-venom, the blood and the water, these great sacramental graces of baptism and the Eucharist and, and, and more to overcome in mercy the poison of sin. I mean, that's one of the best ways, I think, to understand really what sin is, is, is poison. You think about even in the baptism ritual, there's a point where the priest says, um, See that the divine life which God gives him is kept safe from the poison of sin. And then the parents are asked, you know, do you reject Satan? Do you reject his works? All his empty promises? We're in a battle and Christ goes to its source. I mean, think about, you know, when he came, his public ministry, where does he go? Well, he goes to the Jordan River for baptism. He stands with sinners in the muddy waters which is kind of really a sign of what sin has done at the lowest place on earth. I mean, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Boom, here it is at the Jordan River. In a sense, when Christ gets baptized, it's like a wicking effect. I was thinking about that commercial, Bounty, the quicker picker-upper. It's like he he enters in the water and he wicks up sin that he's going to take ultimately and bring it to the cross. (coughs) Excuse me. But then what does he do? Right away, as he's empowered publicly, he goes forth to take on the source of the problem at its roots, which is is Satan. So he goes into the desert, and then he rebuffs the attacks that Adam fell to, that Israel fell to, you know, these temptations that um, he has given. It's to kind of redo, restore, repair. The term officially is kind of like recapitulate. Irenaeus said that, I think, in the second or third century. He said uh, that Christ is going to... uh, Rehead, recapitulate, restore all the things that was done wrong. He comes to make right, to redo what was un, undone. In a sense, he's going to be taking us from the old Adams family. I mean, think about the movie Adams Family, lovable monsters. He becomes, he's going to transfer us to a new Adams family. He's going to restore us into his likeness that has now been marred since the, the fall. So then, when he had 
you know, conquered Satan in, in, in all these te- tests. It says that, you know, the devil departed from him for a, a, a time. But even in the Lord's public ministry, you see him as, as an exorcist, right? He's casting out demons uh, in the synagogue. Evil is afraid of him. Have you come to destroy us? The crowds were amazed about what Jesus was doing. So it's obvious, it's clear that, you know, the Lord still has this role to conquer Satan. And we too need to have that as well. I mean, every year at, our, at our Easter, we renew our baptismal promises. But of course, you know, um, Satan wasn't done with Jesus yet. Yet at the end, he entered into Judas. He was betrayed. He enters into the garden. Christ has to take on the cross, but he dies. And so ultimately, he's going to conquer him through through the cross. He says, now is the judgment of this world um, happening. The rule of this world is going to be, be cast out. So Christ wins the victory over Satan, but... As the head, so the members, we're still in battle, so we pray every time in the Lord's Prayer to be saved from the power of of the evil one. So again, I love it when um, you think about in the history of the church, like Constantine, you know, he was given a sign in, in, in the heavens of, of, of a cross, you know, the key row symbol, uh, by the sign conquer, he was told. And so in the cross, we're going to be given um, grace to kind of conquer the enemy, conquer evil one. You think about... Um, like if you go to the St. Louis Cathedral on the Bishop's Cathedra Trayer, it's 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 got the the letters ICXC. That's a Greek monogram that means Jesus Christ Conqueror. You think about the term Nike. That's kind of what you you might see ICXC N I K I Jesus Christ Nika Nike Conqueror. So he's he's the victor over sin and death. You know, so ultimately in him we can conquer, but we got to pray and we got to work. So. So we celebrate that every year on the feast of of Christ the King, is that uh, we we entrust ourselves to Christ to conquer us. He's the one who who took the sting of death for us, and um, and we can entrust our lives in Him. So, you're listening to Saint Joe Radio presents the Rome of the West. My name is Sean Miller. We're talking about um, Christmas. Reasons why Christ came. We're working through this memory aid, and I hope it kind of helps you. Just to kind of summarize, you know, we kind of laid the foundations about you know why why Christ first come in terms of the big picture. He destined us to share in this great exchange of His life. He came primarily as Savior. He came to fulfill prophecies. But now we're going through this memory aid, Christmas. So we went through C to conquer. Now we're going to be on H to heal. So you look back at one of the great prophecies of Jesus as his suffering servant. I mean, many people never thought that he would come like this, like he would be as one who would suffer. But in Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So Christ comes ultimately to heal us, not just in eternity, but in, in time. They say he's here for whole salvation, not just soul salvation. So again, going back to Isaiah, you know, he's the one that we've been reading through all of Advent, and he gives us these prophecies about, you know, the Savior is going to come with vindication. The eyes of the blind shall see, the ears of the deaf will, deaf will be open, then the lame shall leap, the mute tongue shall sing. He's going to um, proclaim liberty to the captives. And so you can see Christ fulfilling this. In Luke 4, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So he sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, etc. So what the Lord does is he's a miracle worker, and everybody is in all of them. The mute are speaking, the deformed were made whole, the lame were walking, the blind were able to see. So that's what Jesus does. 
is he heals. And again, today, healing ministry is still alive and well in the church. Um, you know, it probably needs to be more so. I don't need to, you know, really ask the Lord to kind of show us these signs and wonders. But they weren't signs just for themselves to say, wow, he comes just to heal me. It's really indicative of the greater picture, what their ultimate intent were. Because remember, no matter how we're healed, we're still all going to die. But in a sense, it's about the spiritual truths. So blindness is about spiritual blindness, deafness, spiritual deafness, leprosy. It's about sins being removed, lameness, spiritually walk, you know, raised from the dead. Spiritual Christ raises us to, you know, walk in a new life. So these are all signs to point to what the ultimate Messiah, Son of God, wanted to do. Is he heals us in time, but it's also ultimately for eternity. So, and these healings and these miracles also strengthen us to uh, really see that this is the power of Christ working. I mean, think about what those um, miracles did for healing. You can imagine the people who were healed by Christ um, <laughs> physically, if you could see, but they say things like, we never saw anything like this. Uh, they were all amazed. What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits. So it's like everyone is in awe, and that opens a door of, of faith. So Christ comes to see, to conquer, H, to heal, and now we move on to R, to, to reconcile. So we talked about the word R, re recapitulation. Again, Christ kind of re, 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 restores, uh, renews, repairs, reestablishes. Uh, but to reconcile, you know, that's uh, specifically, there's some text there that, that Paul speaks about that this is why Christ comes. Reconcile literally means to, to bring back together. I mean, think about the word uh, religion. Uh, it's from the Latin words, re-ligare. Think about ligament, you know, it's like, this is what unites us together. So to kind of reunite, rejoin, uh, bring back together, this is what Christ comes to do. Now think about, um, this is from Steve Ray's Footprints of God. He says, uh, again, going back to Jesus as fulfilling, you know, about what Adam had done and, and recapitulating. He says, two sinless Adams approached by the devil, struggled in two gardens at two trees and experienced two deaths because of one sin. Adam's disobedience at the tree of life brought about death, but Jesus' obedience at the tree of death brought about life. Adam was naked without shame and because of sin had to be clothed. Jesus was clothed, but to pay the price for the sin, he was stripped naked and shamed. The first Adam had separated mankind from God. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, hung between heaven and earth as the one mediator who could bring God and man back together again. So this reconciliation, it's like the Humpty Dumpty story here. Um, you know, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. They had a great fall. It's like original sin. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Think about that. It's like all the king's priests, kings, prophets, kings, they couldn't do anything to really restore that divine life. So what had to happen? Really, we had to have a new egg. We had to be restored. The bridge is destroyed between God and man. No one could put it back together again. Only it would be fitting as if God became man and in the name of man could restore that bridge back to God. So Paul says in Ephesians that, um, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Through him, he came to reconcile all things in himself, whether on earth or in heavens, making peace by the blood of the cross. Colossians 1, 2, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present to you holy and blameless, irreproachable before him. So he says, he reconciles us to God through his cross. You almost look at like a cross is like the bridge. Imagine these two chasms, these two mountain ranges. At the top of the mountain, there's nothing but a valley between them. Here comes this divine bridge in Jesus on his cross, through the wood of the cross, in a sense, that that wood is is this great drawbridge that's going to unite us uh, back to God. Father Hardin, he said this one time, he said, who is Jesus Christ? He is the second person of the Trinity, whom the Father sent into the world to become man of the Virgin Mary in order to save the world from sin. Having lost God's friendship, mankind of itself could not regain this life of grace any more than a man who is dead could bring himself to life again. God could have reopened heaven by simply forgiving everything without reparation, but this would have been less in keeping with his perfect justice and with the divine will to manifest his perfect love. He therefore decided to take the most sublime course possible. His only son was to take on human nature and thus representing all humanity, redeem us through his passion and death. Perfectly, perfectly adequate reparation and perfectly satisfactory expiation could only be achieved by a man who was at the same time God. Christ then is our mediator because by his death, he reconciled an estranged human race with its creator. He is the one perfect mediator. The man Christ Jesus is even now the eternal high priest who stands between God and sinful human beings. He continues reconciling us with God by his favors and gifts and offers to the heavenly father prayers and satisfaction for our misdeeds. So again, the great line there, perfectly adequate reparation and perfectly satisfactory expiation could only be achieved by a man who was at the same time God. So you could say Jesus paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. So again, the whole point of his death was to bring men back to, back to God. Sin had made a division and Christ healed it, making atonement. Think about the word. It's at one minute. God and the human race now are at one. So again, Christ restores it, repairs it. We become at one with God. We can now take part in his resurrected flesh and we can have peace. So when we come back next time, we're going to go part two of Christmas and continue on this memory. Hopefully it'll help you to appreciate more the meaning and mystery of this great uh, feast we celebrate in the church Christmas. Until then. to St. Joseph Radio presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to every everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents.